Back to our passage in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, we left off where we left off. Last time we saw the intervention, the intercession, you might say, of Abraham for the righteous in Sodom as he came before the Lord and as the Lord visited him and he, he discussed with the Lord the, the, the fate of those who might be saved, those who might know God, those who are righteous in Sodom. And what we really see is this, we might look at it as an old oriental bargaining session was really an intercession for the sake of those who Abraham knew and loved, the sake of the righteous in Sodom. And so, and so this face-to-face -face meeting is a picture of prayer, isn't it? And last time we looked at Luke 18, and I just want to make a clarification before we go on today. In Luke 18, we find the account of the widow who wearies the, the governor in regards to her request for justice. And, and, God re, and God applies it to himself, and he says, wouldn't you, when, you, when God's children cry out to him night and day, he says, won't he avenge them speedily? I don't want to give the impression that, that prayer is picketing heaven until God gives in and gives us what we want. Instead, we know in the scriptures, is, is prayer is, is aligning ourselves with God's will and, and discovering what God wants and, and experiencing what God wants in our lives. In fact, the point of Luke 18 is really the fact that God answers speedily. In the sense of the illustration, the widow had to go weary, wear down the resistance day after day after day. And the application is, is God will answer speedily. He responds immediately. Now, he may say, wait. He may say, not today. He may say, no. He may say, yes. But the glory of our Heavenly Father is that he hears us immediately and answers our requests quickly. And that's really the, the point of that passage. Prayer, our we, nowhere in Scripture do we see the right to demand our will of God. Instead, we expect God to act within the bounds of His will. And we can, we can expect that in our prayers before Him. So I wanted to make that clar clarification to us. And in fact, the passage ends in verse 8 in regards to will, he find, will Jesus find faith in the earth? And that faith is a persistent prayer. God says pers be persistent in prayer. Cry out night and day. That's a, that's a, that's a cry of relationship and a dependence. And that's the kind of faith we need to continue, continue to express towards our God. So I wanted to make that clarification. And that's really what Abraham found out in his discussion with God, didn't he? He found out what God's will was in regards to Sodom and the righteous. And he says, you know, if there's 10 righteous, he'll spare Sodom. And so Abraham discovered the will of God in his prayer. And as we go into chapter 19, we, we find here then this tragic story of Sodom. And it's really a sordid story. And so let's go ahead and read through this as well this morning to catch the lesson. Verse ni chapter 19, verse 1 says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he arose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the ground. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called a lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brother, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, 
that you may do to them as you wish, but only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. And when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest ye be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters, the Lord be being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city is called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where the Lord had stood where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew in the cities in which Lot had dwelt. What a tragic, sordid story, isn't it? You know, and God doesn't mince words when he records for us history in the scriptures, does he? This is life as it was in that day. And we looked last time at what, what it meant to, uh, what the outcry may have meant or may have been or how it came to God, but God came to examine Sodom and made the decision to destroy the city. You know, I've read recently that there, in archaeological digs near the Dead Sea, there are, there are remains of a city, and, and people disagree whether or not it is Sodom, but there are remains being discovered in which roofs are melted and pottery is, is, pottery is bubbled and great signs of intense heat. And the debate is, and is whether or not this could be the sign of the cities of the plain. Some say the dating is wrong, but nonetheless, there's no doubt in our minds because we know the Bible is true that someday they will discover that type of effect because this really happened. This is just a, what a tragedy because of the depravity of man. You know, last time when we, when we were introduced to this portion, we asked the question of our nation. How far from this type of condition are we today? When we read Romans chapter 1, 
In fact, if you want to turn there, once again, we read chapter 1, you think, you know, this is the daily news for us. This is what this is what's, is experienced in our, in our culture regularly. And the question we have to ask ourselves, if we want to find the answer for our culture today, is how did we get there? How did we get there? And Romans 1 is probably the best passage of Scripture that, that explains this digression to us. In verse 18... It tells us that the unrighteousness of men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's the first thing he states in regards to our departure from the living God. Because we look around us, we, it's very clear in our society today and around the world today that we've departed from God. You know, I hate to admit I've lived as long as I have, but I remember times when I grew up where, where people understood a little bit about the Bible, what the Gospels were, who Jesus was, and, and, and about creation and and people have become increasingly ignorant as far as the scriptures. And because of rational thinking, scientific thinking, evolutionary thinking, have deemed the Bible to be a fairy tale. And it is much ignored today. Add to that, churches who no longer teach the whole counsel of God, and people have become very, very spiritually um, unlearned today. And, and yet, here it tells us that the beginning of this decline in our culture today, begins with suppressing the truth through unrighteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's the, it's, God says it here. It's the unrighteousness of man. It's unrighteous living. You might describe it as the gratifying of our desires has blinded us to what God has for us. You know, we live for things below, don't we? Or maybe the ex exaltation of self today. We live in a self-culture today. And, it, and that feeds our pride and independence from God. And it keeps us from seeking His truth. Maybe that aspect of being wise in our own eyes, thinking that science has to have the answer. Science can't be contradicted. And we've abandoned and contradicted the truth that sets us free. And those are just a few examples of the unrighteousness of man which have departed from the holiness of God that begins us to decline and cause us to ignore the evidence. Because it says here, because in verse 19, what may, what may be known of God is manifest in them. What's the evidence? We have a God consciousness. It's manifest in us, the Bible says. God has placed within the heart of man a consciousness of himself, and yet the Bible says that consciousness is seared with a hot iron, and here it says it's suppressed through unrighteousness. We've, we've dulled our, our consciousness of God. That's one of the witnesses God has given us, an awareness of a creator. And that's why people today have that witness and don't realize that sometimes we call it an emptiness in our lives, a hole in our hearts, and we look to all kinds of stuff to fulfill it recreation and, and sex and entertainment and accomplishments and all these things, and they never satisfy. That's what Solomon came to that conclusion, didn't he? Vanity of vanities, it doesn't satisfy because there's a hole in our heart. What it is, it's the witness of God that we need to respond to. God has shown it to them, it says here in verse 19. And then at verse 20, we have the external witness of creation. The, the, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, clearly seen. And sometimes when I speak to young people and we speak maybe on this idea of apologetics and the reality of God and the, the, the truth of creation, they just tell them, look at the evidence. Look around us. It screams. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare. It screams the glory of God. It's clearly seen in what the world likes to call intelligent design is the beauty and wonder of a creator who has created the fullness of life that we enjoy today. They're clearly seen. And therefore, we, the world today, first of all, suppresses 
those truths so they do not see the evidence. They're blind to the evidence. You wonder, how could he be so blind? How could he actually think this is an accident? When you look at the intricacies of life in the human body and creation and so on. And then the next step, it tells us here, because verse 21, when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. I think that is a, is a, that is a startling and stunning statement. When they knew God. Well, who's that? Who is it? Who knows God? Well, in, our, in the context of life today, we talk about knowing Jesus as our Savior. Because mankind is born in this life alienated from God. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are void of the life of God. And there's one solution, and that is the cross of Christ. It's one of these banners up here, wherever it is. Christ and the cross, back in that corner. That's the solution that God came up with to redeem the catastrophe and corruption of sin. Jesus paid it all on the cross so that we could be forgiven and restored to new life in Christ. And, and, the, and, when, and when a person trusts Christ as Savior, you come to know God as your Heavenly Father. Know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You can begin to develop a relationship with God because you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about Christians. that They here, I believe, as Christians. Or in the Old Testament terminology, Old Testament saints. When they knew God... When they knew God. We're not talking about the unbelievers here. Because they don't know God. Apart from the cross, people are alienated from God. Those who know God are Christians. And when they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Neither were thankful. Now that can be quite convicting and sobering, can't it? They didn't allow, when people, when Christians do not allow God to be God in their lives allow them to be their Lord and God, when they don't live with that abiding respect or fear of the God, that reverential awe of, awe of God, we're not glorifying Him as God. And Christianity has so gravitated towards a man-centered religion that we, in reality, when we look to our, our taste in worship and service, it glorifies and satisfies ourselves rather than glorifying God, putting Him on the throne and serving Him even if it means sacrificially. And it's indicated by, by a lack of an attitude of thankfulness. Now, I'm not saying the world isn't thankful today, but by and large, it's a selfish thankfulness, isn't it? I'm so glad I got this. You know, actually, I was out, I had a, a few minutes to fish the other day, and I caught a nice smallmouth, and, you know, and I was thankful that I caught something that evening. And, you know, but we have a tendency to be selfishly thankful because when we get a benefit, we're all glad, we're all happy. We call it thankfulness, but thankfulness in the scripture has a direction. It's to someone. It's thankfulness to God. That's what it's referring to here. We forget who is a source of blessing, who is a source of love, who is a source of power, who is a source of sustenance. And, by, and thereby not giving God the credit for all he provides. You see, it's only a saint, those who have become a child of God, by God's grace, can give thanks always for all things. Ephesians 5.20. That's, that's what it's talking about. Always for all things. You know, it's easy sometimes, my wife and I pray when we, we, we love to be outside in the sunshine and thank God for the sunshine and a beautiful day today. And I'm thinking when it is hailing and storming and, and snowing or blizzarding, do we do have the same attitude? Thanks for the hail that destroyed my car today, Lord. No, we don't always thank him for the bad things that happen, but we thank him he's in control. We can give thanks to God that he knows what he's doing and allowing things in our lives for his glory and our good. And so... When they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God or recognize His sovereign care in their lives. 
And then it goes on to tell us that, verse 22, they're enlightened, enlightened to their own destruction. Professing themselves wise to be wise, they became fools. And you hear this term sort of banded around through the years of enlightenment. Of, you know, it's the world's become enlightened. You know, it talks about the scientific age or and the, the progression in human experience. And, so, and God says, in reality, they become fools. And that's what's happened in our, even in science today, who wants to do everything they can to deny the existence of a creator who can create the world in seven, seven literal days, and they are enlightened to their own destruction. And that's why in verse, in the next verse, it goes on to tell us, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, like made like the corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. And, you know, we look at this in the context, thinking, well, back then they had idol worship. Well, we know idol worship today is materialism, sensualism, funism, selfism, and ismismism. It's that which does not put God at the center. That's idol worship today, whether it's man or experiences or whatever it might be, and it's called futile and foolish. That's what verse 21 describes it as, as it introduces this por portion. It's futile and fu foolish, and it evolves towards, in verse 25, the worship of self. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That is that 180 flip, where man becomes center rather than God. And that's the day and age that we live in. And Christians can fall into that trap. We can think that, it, you know, that our decisions in regards to how we live our Christian lives and how we worship and how we serve is based upon my enjoyment, my reward, my pleasure. And that's backwards. We're here for the glory of God. That's why God created us. Now, there is pleasure and fulfillment and contentment and giving your all for, for Jesus Christ. There is reward in that. And one of the rewards is to see how the power of God can supply when you're willing to lay it all out for him. That's the reward, but it's not what we often flip that formula. And that's what happens in the decline. And this, so this verse can describe both believer and unbeliever alike. And then it's downhill from there, isn't it? God gave them up. And it's what we read in that passage, the, the, all the, the lengthy laundry list seems to be so typical of the human experience today. And so for Sodom, we knew what was next for them. The angels were there to, bring, to carry out the Lord's justice and judgment upon Sodom. And what's next for the world today? It could be judgment. We know that there's a tribulation coming. You know, James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to, those, to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And God would much rather extend his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. He's been doing that for a couple thousand years now since the cross and before. He'd much rather save and deliver and rescue those. But for those who have shown no mercy, that's, regard, that's in reference to the unrepentant. Judgment is coming. Because God is not only a loving God, he is a holy God. And that's what makes our future glorious that God is going to maintain his holiness, and his holiness is going to demand judgment upon this world system. And you read Revelation, and it's not pretty, the judgment that is coming, just as a, is an ugly picture in the judgment of Sodom. The answer here for our culture today, the solution begins the beginning of this passage. Let's glorify God as God. 
that's a good answer. That's what's missing. That's what's lacking. Whether it's a willingness to respond to his offer of eternal salvation to become his child, or whether it's the Christians who ought to live in light of the Lordship of Christ in our everyday life. Let's glorify him as God. That's all we can do. And we can bring that message to the lost world around us so they can come to know God and begin to glorify him as God in life today. The answer is not in the Oval Office, the Halls of Congress, in right-wing moral campaigns. The answer is in the power of God. And when we glorify him as, begin to glorify him as God, we can experience that delivering power in our lives. Well, Lot was living in the middle of all this, wasn't he? And before we go back to Genesis 19, there's a lengthy, important passage in 2 Peter I want you to see this morning as well, 2 Peter chapter 2. Because Lot becomes the example of the, the believer who's caught in the middle, who's living in the middle, who's a, who's, who is compromised with the culture, and uh, God has something to say about him in 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verse 6. There it says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So there's our warning as a nation today. Sodom and Gomorrah was an example. And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Really the primary message here that he's point he's making is that God can deliver the godly out from underneath the judgment that the unrighteous are going to experience as he did with Lot. That's the point here. But in making that point, he mentions a couple things about Lot. He was first of all oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked in that he saw and heard he dwelt among them, and maybe is the key word in verse 8. And so he oppressed his righteous soul. I think the old King James used the word vexed, his righteous soul. He oppressed his righteous soul. And it, it seems to indicate that Lot maybe didn't participate in their immoral deeds, but just dwelling amongst them, making his home there, was enough to, to indicate to us that Lot, Lot was deliberately tolerating and accepting that behavior. It didn't bother him to live there. These words, oppressed and tormented, carry the word, the idea of being distressed and tortured. And sin tortures our righteous soul. And when we willingly tolerate in our life, that's what it does. It tortures us. It distresses us. You know, I mentioned last week, you know, that foreign material in the life of man destroys, like sand in a bearing. It destroys. And sin is the sand of life that brings destruction. It doesn't belong there. It's not normal. And we may think, well, I have an appetite for it. Well, absolutely you do. That's the sin nature. It has an appetite for, for the things of sin. But God came to deliver us from this ungodly world and its menu that, that appeals to that nature. And that, and that, but that participation in sin distances the child from his heavenly father. James 4, 4 says, adulterers and adulteresses. This is not talking about physical, it's talking about spiritual adultery. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And when we are a friend of the world, we're the enemies of God, it says here. And that's where Lot was at. It oppressed him, it distanced him, it made him live as an enemy of God. 
Well, thank God for his mercy. We saw it in the passage. God reserved some mercy for him, and Lot recognized that. I didn't deserve it, but you, you saved some mercy for me, and you delivered me from this judgment. And the point James is making here is seeing and hearing is something we have to be aware of. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Come out from, we're commanded to be separate. It's part of our sanctification towards God is to be separate from the world. And yet it's interesting that at the same time God tells us that we're in the world but not of the world. Jesus prayed that in John 17 when he says, I, I, pray, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And so though God warns us about seeing and hearing, and I think that, that's, the, that's the idea of being comfortable and accepting of the world's perspectives, attitudes, behaviors, and lifestyles. We're to be separate from that. But at the same time, he sent us into the world to win the lost. In fact, in that passage of 1 Corinthians 5, where, where God deals with incest in the church and tells them to put that person out of the church, he, he reminds them, in these verses, in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He didn't say isolate yourself from them. Instead, he says, I've written to you not to keep comp company with anyone who is a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or extortioner. The point he was saying here says, I think uh, you need to separate from a brother in Christ who knows better in order that they might learn their lesson. But he says, I didn't tell you to, to, to isolate yourself from the world. Otherwise, you might as well go out of the world. If we're all going to go live in a commune somewhere and never have contact with the world, we might as well just go to heaven. That's what he's saying here. And so there's a balance, isn't there? Where we're going to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to have separation without isolation. But God never intended us to do like Lot, to be dwell among them, make our home among them, to be comfortable with them. We're not to fit in with their cultures and values. Instead, we are to be separate. We're never to compromise in order to reach them. And there are people today who think that you have to be like them to reach them, and that's just not Bible, is it? Because we're not commanded to violate our testimony in order to reach others for Christ. Instead, we're to stand for truth and righteousness. We're to live right amongst them as we reach them, even if they don't understand what we do. You know, and when you just stand for truth or when you stand for righteousness, what's impressed on them is the respect for God's word and ways. We might think, well, you know, it's going to hurt the friendship if I, if, I, if I leave them or depart from them or don't, have, don't, don't play with them. And no, they're gonna, instead they're going to realize that God is first. And there is a righteousness and truth to be stood for. God says, be holy as I am holy. And we obey him first, and we allow him then to use that testimony to impress upon the lost his way. Remember, the end never justifies the means because the means are God's and the results are his as well, aren't they? We just trust him to work. Sometimes I've given people through the years, young people through the years, and as, they as they try to discern how to handle unsaved friendships. And it's important that we develop redemptive relationships. We're here to win the lost. But we must do so, I think, on our terms. That's kind of how I like to put it, in order to preserve one's testimony and the integrity of the testimony of God's word. And sometimes it's just time to leave, isn't it? 
Sometimes walk away. I used to tell young people, if you're, if you're invited to go somewhere that you're not sure what's going to occur, make sure you have the keys. Because there might come a time when, it, when you, it's just time to walk away in order to, to preserve one's testimony and faithfulness to God. Because dwelling amongst them, seeing and hearing, will torture our righteous souls. God calls us to be separate. Let's go back to, back to Genesis 19, finally then, back to the passage we're actually studying, Genesis chapter 19. And let's see here, if, if Lot is an example of a tortured soul, a spiritually tortured soul, one who has compromised with sin, let's see some of the fruit of that life, the effects or consequences of that lifestyle. In verse 1 through 3, we find that these angels come, and Lot invites him into their house, and they say, and I think this is deliberate. I, I personally, I just think they says, no, we're going to spend the night in the open square. Well, Lot knew what life was in the open square at night. And he thought, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to go there. But he didn't, I don't, we don't see him telling him why. He just insisted strongly. And I think that's a picture of a hypocritical believer not wanting to be found out. That's what I think. There was a time years ago when a Bible study I was teaching in a certain area that I had a, a young fellow that was wanted to lead music before we sang, wanted to lead a few songs. He was a good singer. And, and uh, by and large, he began to drift away and quit coming out to hear the Bible taught. And I and, uh, hadn't seen him for um, a long, long time. And one week, uh, a relative of his came to visit, a cousin of his came to visit. And he shows up, first time I'd seen him in uh, many, many months. And he asked me, if, he, if I wanted him to lead, lead singing. And I know this person quite well, very well, actually. And um, I says, no. No, you're just trying not to be caught. Not to have people realize that you're, you're known for being a song leader here, but you have that you've been absent. And whether or not it was the right decision is a discussion for another day, but it was that same attitude. When we're hypocritical, we often don't want to get caught. That's what he's telling these men. No, 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 you can't, you can't go out there. You know, and there's no joy or peace when we play both sides, is there? Well, then as it goes on here, we find that in the next verses, that when we compromise the world, we don't affect just ourselves. We compromise with the world, excuse me. We don't just affect ourselves, we affect others, don't we? And he brought risk, danger, to the men in the town. And as, as the, men of the, excuse, the men under his household, these two messengers of the Lord, and in verses 4 and 5, there were those that wanted to abuse them. And that's what, that's what happens. Our sin does not just affect us. We think we're an island sometimes in the, in the sea of life, and our, everything we do affects others. I sometimes even see in a, in, a, in a service, those who pay good attention, they get a smile out of once in a while, it lifts my heart up when I see you pay attention. Especially when I realize I must not be speaking dyslexically, like I often do. But you're, you're enjoying the word. And others that are, you know, checking the watches. And that really encourages a preacher. Really lifts me up, doesn't it? You see, everything we do has an effect on others. And Lot's behavior, his compromise of sin, brought these, these guests of his into a dangerous, risky situation. In our next verse... Then we see, next verses, then we see here these men, Lot confronting these men, 
And he offers up his two daughters. I just only want to say that. What decadence. You know, sin leads to further and further decline, just like we saw in Romans chapter 1, into the, to the pl- place where he completely lost his moral compass. This is unbelievable. You read this and think, did this actually occur? How could a father even think such a thing? Loss of love for family, isn't it a sign of the last times without natural affection? That's the consequence of a life. And by the way, Lot was blind to it. He's blind. We don't see ourselves. We saw that last time. In verse 9, we find then his own personal risk. When after he confronts the people, they say, stand back. We're going we're gonna, we're, we're gonna to come in. But then they criticize him. He says, you're going to keep acting as a judge. You keep pointing your finger at us, and we're going we're gonna to deal with you too. You see, for a Christian who plays it fast and loose with the world, there's no real friends. Because you burnt bridges with Christian friends, possibly, and there's no basis of fellowship around our Savior, and the world knows. Honestly, I've seen through the years some of the greatest disrespect people um, view each other in as Christians who don't live up to their beliefs. The world doesn't like that, doesn't appreciate that. And that's what's seen here. There were no, there were no friends. These men, they, they lived and dwelt amongst, weren't, weren't their friends. And it put him at personal risk himself, didn't it? Then we see later on in this passage, here God intervenes, he pulls them into the house, that's in a whole other message in itself, he blinds them, and that was a, that's the amusing part of the story, but it's a tragic part of the story as they clawed for the door in their desperation to fulfill their desires. But God delivers them from that, pulls them in the house, and then tells them to, to gather his family, and in verse 14, his son-in-law's laughed at him. Maybe you're thinking, the crazy old man, he's insane. And here he was, the one Lot who had been Abraham's, Abraham's companion and nephew and who knew the Lord God, and he thought he told his family about God, and they thought, you're joking. You're nuts. You're crazy. They laughed at him. They didn't take him seriously. And so we find the destruction of our testimony and, 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 hypocr- and hypocrisy does cause others to disdain one's version of religion or pseudo-morality. They laughed him out of the house. Then in verse 16, later on, we see his addiction to sin. He didn't want to give it up. He lingered. Well, he lingered. Huh. You've got to be kidding me. He lingered. Do I really want to leave? And that's the tip of the flesh. Our flesh is weak. And we don't like to give up what's bad for us once we, and because sin is habit-forming, isn't it? And he was incapable of making a good spiritual decision, so God made it for him and dragged him out of the place. And in verse 18, he doesn't even go where God sends. Does he? He says, I want to I be a city dweller. Well, that's been the problem. Well, God gave him the mercy to just said, go ahead. You can go over to that city. But you can tell he wasn't trusting God. He was afraid of the dangers and risks of going where God sent. Isn't that funny? Being afraid of the risks of the place where God wants to send you. There's no faith, isn't it? And so he was unable to fully escape the desires of the flesh. Didn't know what was good for him. You know, and, and, and folks, believers that get mired in sin, there is deliverance available. 
but it requires, I believe, a clean break. I've seen people try to break, break it with whatever sinful pattern they are in, but they linger and they long and they play around the edges. And the ones that I've seen that have experienced the power of God are those ones that are, have a clean break, put it all behind them once and for all and forever. And God gives them the grace to do so, doesn't he? Well, that was a lot. And as, as a result, he, just, he, he experienced loss, didn't he? He lost his wife. She turned back. Now, it was her decision, but Lot was the leader, of the leader of the home, and he put her in that culture. And as a result, lost his life. And sin is, wreaks havoc on relationships, doesn't it? Sin turns us inward. It makes us selfish. It makes us demanding, critical, crabby, unforgiving, without compassion. We're in turn the love of Christ. Turns one upward. And God enables us to forgive, to show compassion and mercy to one another in our relationships. Where the love of self, fueled by the feeding of our selfish love, destroys, doesn't it? I mentioned this quote before, but Jane Esson Darby had a tremendous, tremendously insightful observation of the effects of sin. And I'll just read part of it here. He says this, sin separates us from God in our thoughts. We have no longer the same sense either of his love or of his power or his interest in us. Confidence is lost. Hope and the value of unseen things diminish, while the value of things that are seen proportionally increases. The conscience is bad. One is not at ease with God. The path is hard and difficult. The will strengthens itself against him. We no longer live by faith. Visible things come in between us and God and take possession of the heart, and so on. Insightful. Insightful. And that's exactly what Lot experienced, and that's the consequences he faced and the tremendous damage and loss he brought upon himself and others there. Now, this is a sordid story, but the good news is victory is available for Christians, isn't it? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. And if we walk in the power of God, we can resist the allure of sin and avoid the pitfalls of compromise. But also the good news for believers is mercy is free. We are mired in sin, independence, self-will. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes him will have mercy. Mercy is available. Through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is higher above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. Victory is available. Mercy is free. And when we are willing to avail ourselves to the resources God has given us in his grace and his power, we can walk with him in victorious living. We can live a life separated to God that brings stability to our life, blessings to others, and glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the lessons you're trying to teach us here, Father. This is, this is really a sad and sobering story, Father. Yet it is the trend of humanity to depart from you, uh, to leave the God who loved them, who created them, who gave himself for them. Yet, Father, as Christians, may we be aware of the solution, the preventative medicine, to glorify you as God in our lives, to allow you to be on the throne of our hearts, to, to take the wheel of our bus, and to direct our every step. May we depend upon your power and your grace and your mercy, and may we express it in persistent prayer and dependence upon you. 
So, Father, take the lessons that we've learned today and apply them to our lives for your glory now. In Jesus' name.